Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining us again on the PCICS podcast, the official podcast of the Pediatric Cardiac Intensive Care Society. My name is Monica Mafla, and I'm a nurse practitioner at Lucille Packard Children's Hospital, Stanford. I'm also a member of the Pediatric Cardiac Intensive Care Society podcasting committee. Today, I have the opportunity to speak with Sandy Stavesky, assistant professor at the University of California, San Francisco School of Nursing. She's presented her work on nursing research's role in preventing harm in hospital and at home for pediatric cardiac surgery patients at the Joint Pediatric Critical Care International Meeting in London this past November. This meeting was a joint endeavor of PCICS, PICS, the Pediatric Intensive Care Society of the UK, and the European Conference on Pediatric and Neonatal Cardiac Intensive Care. Thank you so much, Sandy, for joining me. Thank you, Monica, for the wonderful invitation to talk about nursing research and talk about the role that nurses play in preventing harm, which is a significant role. Yes, absolutely. Can you give us a little introduction on what you spoke about in London? I would love to. First, I introduced the audience to the state of science, nursing science specifically. We reviewed the literature of several well-known nurse scientists from both Europe and from the United States. And then I was able to talk a little bit about my own research. So we talked a little bit about the work of both Levan Tume and Joss Latour from the UK and from Europe. And they have done a wide variety of studies and have helped nurses in both of their their respective areas become scientists. Levon's work really focuses in a lot on feeding and on safe suctioning in cardiac patients, whereas Joss's work focuses more on family-centered care and work with parents. And I think both of those very important topics, or all four of those topics, are very important and very nurse-driven type of work. Other nurse scientists that we highlighted were the works of Patty Hickey and Jean Connor and their collaborations together. Patty Hickey has really been a forerunner in nursing administration and providing the supports for excellence in nursing practice. And Jean Connor has really focused in on validating several important tools and creating safer environments and using an important QI collaborative for nursing to be able to both follow the observations between units, practices, and quantify best practices. And other work that we talked about was the work of Kathy Musato, who has done a tremendous amount of work in neurodevelopmental outcomes and quality of life for children and adolescents with cardiac disease. We also want to acknowledge the work of Karen Uzark, who has created a number of important studies about quality of life as well in the transplant population. And Amy Lasante is a budding neuroscientist who is doing important work on neurodevelopmental outcomes in neonates with congenital heart disease. The work that I wanted to talk about was my work with delirium 
and work with parent home care education. And that is work that I do in the developed world, but I also do work in the developing world where I've worked with parent education again and other programs in preventing harm through capacity building. And when you state that you're preventing harm, can you define what harm is? Is it post-surgical site infections? Is it readmissions? Those are really great questions. I think I take a broader view of what harm means. I I believe we all come to work wanting to do the best things possible for our patients. But there are things that we do to children that we have to do to get them better, but do cause harm. So if you put somebody on cardiopulmonary bypass, it's important. You need to, to have that, that process to be able to fix their heart disease, but with it comes associated challenges, delirium potentially being one of them. Um, because it leads you down a cascade. If you've been on bypass for a long time, you're going to come out sick. We're going to give you probably more sedation because you're going to be in the ICU longer. It takes you longer to get off the ventilator. And I see that as preventing harm by implementing sedation protocols that use targeted sedation or lowest effective dose sedation to be able to move forward or even doing observational studies to show where there are more PRN doses given at night versus during the daytime. It it brings up some of the care that we provide and allows us to look at it critically and potentially to make changes in that to affect positive outcomes. Excellent. Thanks for clarifying. Thank you for asking. (laughs) One of the first things that I did working on uh, my dissertation work, and that was developing the Parent Education Discharge Instruction Program, which I collaborated with an NGO called Children's HeartLink, and we created both literate and low literacy documents to create a standardized approach to providing home care education. The nurses in the developing world many times don't have as much autonomous practice as nurses have in, let's say, the United States. And so their discharge teaching really included reading the discharge summary to the families, which were more written to be documents from one physician to another physician. And so with that program, we were able to help nurses take up this role and provide them with training tools to learn how to and what to teach, and then also parent documents to be able to hand out to families so that they could take them with them. And what we found was that the nurses really enjoyed the role. Parents got better education, and we were able to reduce surgical site infections from 26% to 2% um, at our study hospital. 
And we figured with that, we probably saved both the hospital money, the family's money. We were able to get them home sooner. We also looked at parent and nurse perceptions of home care education uh, before and after implementation of the program. And it was interesting data that we found that the parents felt closer to the nurses after we implemented the program and that the nurses felt closer to the parents we use validated tools. There was a lot of rigor in the study. And we found that there's positive and negative effects of implementing the program. One of the negative effects that we found was that both the parents and the nurses felt parents were less prepared after we educated them. And we really feel like that was a component of parents and staff really not knowing what it was that they needed to be teaching yeah, the absolutely. parents or the nurses or the, the parents what they needed to learn. And so we've been able to use this program at a number of hospitals. It's been implemented at nine hospitals in Children's HeartLinks program, and it's in six countries, and we reach at least 10,000 um, patients and family per year. Wow, that's excellent. It sounds really empowering for both the parent and the nurses, especially in the developing worlds where um, nursing education is a big component of outreach. Um, yeah. That's excellent. Well, thank you. Thanks for sharing that project with us. We also used that as the basis for developing a home care education program for both nurses and interprofessionals and families for folks in the developing or in the developed world, excuse me. So we developed home care for heart health um, at Cincinnati Children's Hospital. And we did our baseline validation testing. And in this program, we developed both a soft-covered little handbook that we could give out to families that's more traditional. We also developed an app for the families to be able to use and did this all by co-creating the process using both families, clinicians, and the study team to be able to do that. And we're very um, excited about this work. It puts low literacy and high literacy together so that families won't feel the stigma of low literacy, um, having to acknowledge that to people, because throughout documents or the app, there's pictograms and icons scattered, and it's all color-coded. And our parents were very, very excited about this work, and we're going to be very happy to um, roll it out and do a multi-center project with Stanford and UCSF. Excellent. When do you expect to roll that project out? Well, we're just in the beginning stages of talking, so hopefully within the next year. Excellent. Well, looking forward to hearing about that. And the work that I do with sedation and delirium has really um, 
The sedation work got me very excited to go to doctoral study. We worked on explicating why nurses do what they do when they administer sedation. We looked at the differences between day and night administration of both opioids and sedative agents. We looked at the team perceptions before and after implementation of comfort guidelines and found some interesting work and some interesting data. For one, nurses gave opioids and benzos for a variety of reasons. It was a complex process. Um, some of the times they gave them because they perceived a child being in pain. They saw that they were tachycardic or they were hypertensive and they presumed pain as they were taught to do. But potentially that could be harmful as well because if they weren't in having pain and they were having changes in their hemodynamics, let's say if there was a co-arc who had surgery and they were hypertensive, it could have been a hemodynamic issue and we may be treating hypertension by using opioids and sedatives. Right, which could in turn be harmful to a developing right. brain. Yeah. Right, very, very true. And, you know, as with anything, anything you provide or give, there's always potential negative consequences. The other work that we looked at was the team's perception. We found very interesting data when we looked at um, team perceptions of comfort, the provision of comfort to patients before and after guideline implementation. We found, number one, that all disciplines felt they knew how to provide comfort or sedatives, but everybody else needed to work on their the way they provided it. And then we also found that after starting a comfort algorithm that the team felt like we were providing better care to our patients, which probably is not unexpected, but it was good to start that documentation journey as to why it's important to use comfort guidelines. We also studied implementation of a comfort protocol at Cincinnati Children's, and we found that after we implemented it, we were able to significantly come down on both our midazolam total exposure and our morphine total exposure. So standardizing the way you manage comfort is a good thing for patients, families, and the staff. For all the clinicians out there, can you describe your protocol that you developed was an algorithm-based steps to follow before implementing um, you know, actual medication interventions? So for the work we did at Stanford, we, we worked on providing broad guidelines as to what drugs to use. For example, all of the patients came back on fentanyl infusions and at the first change of the syringe, we changed over to a morphine infusion so that the, the patients didn't grow as tolerant to fentanyl and we didn't have to escalate dosages as frequently. 
in Cincinnati, we were able to decrease the total exposure by starting at lower doses. I see. And then slowly moving up. And then the final algorithm that I was a part of developing was the cardiac restore protocol. We worked on developing a lowest effective dose strategy using targeted sedation. And so if you came back and you were going to be extubated within 24 hours, you were put on one protocol. And if you were expected to stay intubated for longer than 24 hours, you were put on a morphine infusion. And there was a whole algorithm approach to how to both escalate or de-escalate your sedative infusions and your opioid infusions. And it was using targeted sedation. So you would choose your, your targeted comfort points for your pain scores. You always wanted to have a pain score of four or less. So you wanted to keep them in mild pain and not go into moderate or severe pain. And for sedative agents, we use the SBS scale. And so you would target in the acute phase whether you wanted them to be a zero, which is calm and comfortable, a negative one, which is asleep but easily arousable. Or if you wanted somebody to be totally sedate and even chemically paralyzed so that because they were so unstable, they couldn't wake up without becoming labile. Each of those were given different goals of therapy. And for someone who was at the zero titration point or the negative one, every eight hours, you would see if you were given any PRNs, count the dose, the amount of um, doses given. If you were three or more, you up titrated. If you were three or less, you down titrated until you reach the targeted sedation point. And these would be collaboratively developed between the nursing and the medical team. Excellent. That brings me to my next question. With all of the different interventions that you've made, across many years of hard work. How have you felt like the reception has been from the multidisciplinary team, from the nursing staff to the medical team, just for people in the future who might be doing similar work that are listening out there? Change is hard. It is, yeah. (laughs) So, you know, you have to be passionate about what it is you're working on. And knowing that it's intrinsically human to not like change or to love change. And so you have to be in it for the long haul and make sure that you are getting key stakeholders involved in the processes to be able to be assured success in the work. From a QI point of view, you know, it's easier because you can make certain changes as you're moving along. From a research point of view, if you're studying an intervention, you have to have fidelity to that intervention and really make sure that you have thought that through as you're moving forward. 
I find that with time, my interventions have been embraced. I haven't had any intervention really not work, but I think that that's because you really need to be persistent, do your homework, have science data to support why you want to do what you want to do. Yeah, absolutely. Do you want to discuss with us a little bit about, you mentioned the other nurse scientists out there and some potential work you're all going to be doing in the future? Yes, I would love to. So we are going to be inviting people at the 2021 World Congress of Pediatric Cardiology and Cardiac Surgery to have a meeting of nurse scientists where we all, through an iterative and collaborative process, start to identify key areas for us to work on to be able to start to form different collaborations and to work on these topics. So that way we can start to move the needle on those key areas that we all believe are the next areas we need to focus in on. So it sounds like you are going to come together with a consensus and and identify some targets that you want to work toward as a a group from different institutions. Yeah, cross-cutting from different locations around the world and from different institutions and invite budding um, neuroscientists to be a part of the process and to really try to move the needle for nursing research. That's great. Before we wrap up, can you talk to us a little bit about how you've seen the nurse scientist role evolve uh, since you started studying to be a nurse scientist and where you see the role going? Just for any of the advanced practice or even uh, nurses out there listening that are interested in research and, and all the work that you're doing. So I think that it's the nurse scientist role is going to be continuing to evolve. Currently in practice, there is only 1% of all the nurses in the world are PhD prepared nurse scientists. And of that, there are at least half, if not more, that are adult nurse scientists. So the amount of people who are focused in on pediatric cardiac critical care are very small. And even if you think about pediatric cardiology, a lot of people focus in on cardiac transplants, quality of life at home, you know, like community-based research. So I see um, a real need for nurse scientists to really like move nursing practice especially in the cardiac ICU forward. There are a number of scientists doing great work, but we probably need more. What I've seen through my career is that initially nurse scientists would work in an academic setting, in a school of nursing, and ladder rank faculty, tenure track faculty, would be teaching 50% of the time and doing research 50% of the time. There are a select 
number of places across the country who are moving to having nurse scientists that are specifically for different topical areas. When I was at Cincinnati Children's, my job was to create a body of science in pediatric cardiac critical care, and my job was to secure funding to be able to keep that moving forward. It was a very different model than other nurse scientists who are within the hospital setting who are focused in on doing EBP work, um, quality improvement work, helping nurses at the bedside do their work, which is all very, very important work, but very different than having someone that nurses are exposed to who's doing their science and having people come on their teams. Right now, the I see probably CHOP as one of the biggest um, proponents of this, having both a nurse scientist role that supports nurses out at the bedside doing their own work, which is so important for care delivery, for the nurse's growth, for magnet status, but also they're going to have a cadre of nurses who they will be creating their own program of research and working with others with an interprofessional team on their research and those interprofessionals working with the um, nurse scientist on, you know, going back and forth, working on the physician's work and working on the nurse's work. And I think that that's really exciting. Yeah, it sounds like a great area for growth in in nursing. Excellent. Well, great. Thank you again, Sandy, for speaking with me today. We enjoyed having you on our podcast. To all our listeners, thank you for listening to the PCICS podcast. Please don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And please subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts. Google Play, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Please visit our website, pcics.org, where you can find more information about how to become a member and enjoy updated info on educational resources, meetings, job listings, and much more. The song, I Don't Know, by Grapes, was used under a Creative Commons 3.0 attribution license.